This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, Chris Riddle joins me as we talk with New York Times columnist and political commentator David Brooks, who was visiting Appalachian, Ohio on part of a tour sponsored by WEAVE, the social fabric project of the Aspen Institute. Brooks talks about the civic revolution he has seen at the grassroots level, where people are building community through trust, relationships, and hard work. This revolution runs counter to the bitter politics in Washington. Tell us a little bit about uh, the work you're doing with the Aspen Institute. I know you started there in March of 2018 on a new project. Yeah, so um, I cover politics uh, for NPR and the New York Times and PBS. And it seemed to me that every problem I was covering was basically had an underlying cause, and that was social fragmentation. Uh, rise of loneliness, rise of distrust, rise of division. That America, it wasn't only that our politics was broken and even that our capitalism was broken, but the system of trust underneath it was broken. And the good news is that that problem is being solved everywhere. In local communities around the country, you find people who are building trust, building community, building connection. I just uh, left a, a panel discussion with some of the local food entrepreneurs, and whether it's the brew pub, whether it's a thing called ACENET, which brings together farmers and food producers, they're really building communities and building uh, relationship. And so the question is, how do we take all the successes that are happening at the local level and make it happen at the national level? And the way I think you do that, a lot of things don't scale. It's, it's about building relationship and trust and, frankly, love and intimacy. But you can build a culture around them. And so one of the things we try to do at, at what we call Weave the Social Fabric Project, first we want to illuminate it. We want the country to pay a lot of attention to these local things that are so inspiring. And then we want to uh, see if we can synthesize a culture and say, this is the values these people have. The country should have their values not the values, frankly, that dominate our politics, and hopefully to shift the culture a little. Around the country, there are different communities that have different ways of organizing relationship. And that's in a lot of places. I was in Spartanburg, South Carolina, not too long ago. And there, as I'm sure in this community, it's the young. They get all the people around the community to say, how can we get our kids from zero to 25, from cradle to career? In other places, it's the arts that can bring people together. And here, you've got a local, obviously, historic legacy of a strong farm economy. You've got local producers producing local goods, whether it's the chips or the brew pub at Jackie O's. Uh, and that brings people together. And I think part of it is economic development. You, as they say here, you have a 30-mile meal. If you can source your food from within 35 miles of where we're sitting, then 100% of the revenue goes to people right here rather than to Mexico or to California or wherever. And so it's just good for the community. So there's an economic play here. But frankly, I'm more interested in the community play. I'm more interested in the idea of people coming together at Jackie O's, uh, producers coming together at this, uh, at uh, ACENET, uh, and building community and relationship with each other so the growers get to meet the people who live in town, uh, and they reestablish trust. To me, that's the most important thing. People 
crossing difference, establishing relationship, and saying, yeah, we're part of one community. We're going to do this thing for our community. And it may involve spending a few more cents for a, some lettuce, but you can do it because you love your community. Do you see those from similarities from community to community that you go and, and, and visit? Uh, you may have a food co-op one place or, or something else another, but do you see those common human human traits. It's amazing. People use the same phrases, and it could be in red parts of the country, it could be in blue parts of the country. They're phrases like deep relationality. How do I get it really in deep relationship? Uh, radical mutuality. There's a sense that there are no haves and have-nots. We're all walking through this together. Often a sense of the whole person. Like sometimes we have a tendency to divide human beings up so a uh, school treats a kid like a brain on a stick, or just feed the brain, or the healthcare is just a liver or a kidney, or a restaurant is just a mouth to feed. But people are dissatisfied with that. They want the whole person to be treated. When they go to a brew pub, they want to get a sense that they're, they're feeding their spiritual life, too, and their emotional life. They're building connections. They're serving a cause, like the, their local community. And so there's a value system here. And I find that value system all around the country, except for in our national politics, where there's a lack of empathy, a lack of civility, and a lack of care for each other. And so there's a phrase in the Book of Job, and the sparks fly upward. Somehow we've got to take all the local sparks and let them fly upward and have a national effect. I know recently uh, you, you gave a speech in Minnesota, and, and your, your quota is saying that we're lost in a valley of our hostilities and resentments. Yeah, if you look at the, the trust for one another, a, a generation ago if you asked Americans, do you trust your neighbors? 60% said, yeah, people around me are basically trustworthy. Now it's only 32% and only 19% of millennials. And so the younger you get, the more people are distrustful. And then there's the rise of isolation. Suicide rates have been rising for 30 years. Depression rates have been rising. Mental health problems have been rising. And when people feel naked and alone, they do what their evolutionary roots tell them to do. They revert to tribe. They try to find some group that can at least give them a sense of connection. The problem with tribalism, it's based on us-them thinking, friend-enemy distinctions. It's based not on mutual affection, but on mutual or shared hostility to somebody else. And that's really what defines our national politics. But if you go to a place like here, or I was in Wilkesboro, North Carolina, and I'll go, people really love their communities. They have a sense, these people are shared with me, and we're not against anybody. We just happen to love our community, and, and that bond of affection, I think, is how we slowly build the country back up. I, I would assume that people on a local level also can see concrete results yeah. of that <laughs> binding and that trust. Whereas on a national level, that's impossible. Yeah. I interview a lot of politicians in the U.S. Congress, and I would say the most unhappy people I meet are people who used to be mayors, and they become members of Congress. Because when they were mayors, they were actually doing something. They could see they were a school, there was a highway, they were renovating an airport. At Congress, they're like, what am I doing exactly? And then I have some friends who were congressmen, went back and became mayors, and they're happy again. I fixed that pothole, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> I got to meet this person. We made this change. Uh, and I see the schools, the test scores are going up. So whereas in Congress, what did you accomplish today? Well, I wrote a bill that had 60 co-sponsors and never made it to the floor. Like, that's it. I didn't do, really do anything, but I talked a lot. Speaking of Congress, we're, we're talking on the day of the, the big hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, you talk about the tribalism. That, that's mm -hmm. certainly 
evident in this whole uh, Kavanaugh confirmation process. Yeah, and I'm so happy to be here, not there, <laughs> frankly. I live just a few blocks from the Capitol, but I'd much rather be here where, where people are civil. And what struck me is I don't really have a, a view on who's right, and I don't know what happened, but so many people made up their mind instantaneously. And I look at my Twitter feed, and frankly, I, this whole last couple of weeks, I've been I've just been hating everybody. Like, <laughs> I just want like just wait, like so let's see, get some information before we get on our high horses and decide. I believe this person, or I believe that person. You've covered politics, uh, among other things. Have you ever seen it this bad? No, it just keeps getting worse. I mean, all the norms and standards of behavior just get eviscerated on a weekly basis. Uh, and, you know, I, I do remember the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas. That was a very unpleasant period. People got really personal. But there were still, you know, we still, frankly, whether you liked George H.W. Bush or you liked Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, there were standards and norms of behavior. And those standards even applied to the U.S. Congress. There were gentlemen and gentlewomen from the Senate who were, you know, John Glenn from here or whatever, uh, DeWine. You know, they, right. they were normal human beings. <laughs> and George Voinovich. George Voinovich, yeah. yeah. And... Um, that, that, there's very little room for that right now. Do you see that changing? Or what would be the spark that would cause that to change? Yeah. So I don't think politics is going to change. I don't think the change is going to come in the political sphere. And that's why I'm here. I think the change is going to come in the civic sphere. We had a time uh, similar to this in the 1890s. And America was being ripped by a new economic revolution to industrialization. We had waves of immigration. We had political corruption. And what happened then was... There was a civic revolution. Citizens rose up and said, we want to live in a decent place. So they created the Boys and Girl Scouts, the Boys and Girls Clubs, the Settlement House Movement, the Environmental Movement, the NAACP, the unions, the Temperance Movement. All these movements came into being. And one of the great things about America is when we have a problem, spontaneous movements form. And so we had feminism to address gender inequality. We had the Civil Rights Movement to address segregation. We have a community problem, and we need a community movement. And so it's not just enough to have these local groups who are doing good things on a local level. Somehow we have to bring them together to create a movement that will shift everybody's mindset and way of thinking. Are you seeing, as you tour around the country and talk to these different organizations, are you seeing them being successful in exporting the ideas that they're finding successful? Like the 30-mile meal, like maybe we have people that are going out and telling other areas about it. Um, Yeah. Leslie, she spends more of her time outside of Athens than in it uh, because so many people are interested. And this area happens to be famous as a place where the the food community has really become organized over decades, not just over the last few years. So I do think you get these best practices. The problem is that a lot of the people, if you're working at a homeless shelter, uh, if you're working at a teen center, you're dealing with – you have a lot of people incoming. You're just basically in, a, in an extended family and if anybody out there has two or three kids, you know how exhausting that can be. Imagine having 50. <laughs> and so their time is really just sucked up. And one of the things we're trying to do at, the, at this thing we call Weave, the Social Fabric Project, is to say, we'll be your celebrators. We'll tell your story. And may, we, that, maybe that's the way you can link things. There was a guy named, um, well, there was a guy named Kevin uh, Kesey in the, 70, in the 60s. Uh, and a guy named Stuart Brand. And they were writers and journalists, and they, the Brand wrote a book called The Whole Earth Catalog, if anybody remembers. And they said, you guys, you're the counterculture. You're the hippies. 
and they celebrated a movement into existence. And people said, yeah, I, that's what I am. What you're describing is what I am. And so we're trying to do that, saying you guys are the community builders. And we don't quite have a name yet. If anybody's a good name for this whole movement, <laughs> I'd love to hear it because the community builder isn't it, it because it's really about building relationship. It's an emotional connection they're making with people. Uh, and But I do see it happening everywhere. And, and to me, that's that's how you change. You, ha- you have a movement. We, we're in the middle of one. I know you're an author and you're a commentator on both PBS and NPR and and Meet the Press and other shows, Uh, but you're also at heart a journalist uh, writing your column for the New York Times. Do you see any conflict between a journalist taking sort of an activist role like like you're taking uh, in this national movement? Yeah, I I think about that a lot. Uh, You know, we're trained as journalists to stand back. And like the the joy of journalism, you get to be around famous people doing stuff or regular people doing stuff, but you don't actually get to do the stuff. And if this work had any partisan implication, then I wouldn't be able to do it. But this work, the work is not at the political level. It's at a sub-political level. It's at the level of building community. And whether you want to build a community in a red way or a blue way or a Catholic way or a Jewish way or an atheist way, I really don't care. Uh, I, I just want the levels of trust to go up. And to me, that seems nonpartisan enough. That, um, that I don't think it impinges on my journalistic ethics. And it's, you know, if you, um, you know, I sit there in my office at the Times and, you know, 45,000 people commit suicide every year in America right now. 55,000 people die of opiate addiction. The norms of our society and our politics are being shredded. It seems like one of those moments when you, it's incumbent upon all of us to do something a little extra. And so this is my stab at saying at least at this moment of, of when national you know, segmentation, at least I can say, well, I, I tried to do something about it. And, and the Aspen Institute has been helpful to rally some money and some staff. And so we're trying to do something about it. Um, what is the uh, ultimate goal of, of Weave? Like, what do you want to see five years down the road um, after going through doing all these panel discussions yeah. and dinners? The first thing is just if we can hold up people like here, here in Athens and, and bring some attention to them, I think that might recruit more people to do this kind of work. I think it might also be an encouragement to the people who are doing the work to have their stories really heard and told. But I guess my big dream uh, is that just as now you can look around and say, hey, there's a feminist movement. In 1960, nobody said, I'm a feminist. By 1975, millions of people said, yeah, I'm a feminist. It was a movement. And so if we could identify a social category and identify a movement, just give people that identity, yeah, I'm a community builder then that, that creating that reference point on the map is a powerful way to shift the political interest and what people are paying attention to. Frankly, we in the media, and I'm as bad as everybody, we pay too much attention to Donald Trump. To me, what these people are doing is the main action in society right now. And so we just it's, it would be very valuable to shine a light on where the main action is. And, and in paying attention to Donald Trump, paying attention to the division right. caused by, yeah. by, by Donald and Trump. He's a, he's a genius at friend-enemy distinctions. And we know whether we're in whatever kind of organization we're part of, if we talk about Donald Trump, there's a spike I know in page views. There's reader interest. So I get it. We're all chasing that. You know, We want to get people engaged in what we do. But I do think we might try in stories that are actually generally inspiring and emotionally very complicated. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University 
seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders. These leaders will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research on communication concepts, issues, and problems. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provides benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Do you get, uh, being out here in the heartland <laughs> of Ohio, uh, we're often uh, not only the flyover area, but we're often the, the place where journalists come out and spend a day and, right. and uh, take pictures of the poverty <laughs> and, and go back and, and we're all dumb, toothless, and, yeah. <laughs> and <I'm> s- unemployed. <laughs> uh, how important is it for you as a journalist even to get out and, and see America in, in a small yeah. town level? Yeah, well, in the last five days, I was in, well, Ontario, Canada, rural Ontario. I was in rural Minnesota. I was in the hill country of West Texas. So to me, getting out and being in the country is um, is a pleasure and an education. And I would say I flew into the Columbus airport this morning, and it's probably my fifth or sixth stop there <laughs> in the last um, uh, uh, last probably four months. Uh, I've done a bunch of things at Columbus, a few things at Ohio State. Uh, I was at Sinclair College in Dayton, Dayton not right. too long ago. So um, if you cover politics and you're not spending a lot of time in Ohio, you're not really covering politics. Covering politics, if we could talk about that a bit, um, the hostility that's been caused by the Trump administration, Mm -hmm. there's always been distrust and always an adversarial relationship between media and politicians, Mm -hmm. but it's gone to to extreme. What dangers do you really see happening with that, or do you think this is just a cycle that we're going through? I still ultimately think it's a cycle, but I'd say a dangerous cycle. Yeah. You know, the 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 um, loss of a sense of truth, that there's a truth that, that we bow down to regardless of our party affiliation, um, when you lose that, you've really lost the basis of your discussions. And if you can't agree on facts, then you really have lost the foundations. Uh, if you have no social trust, as I mentioned, then you can't do a business deal, you can't do a political deal, you can't accept the legitimacy of the other side. Uh, I happen to come across um, a description of the end of the Roman Empire, and it was, and Gibbon, the historian, describes how it was one individual separating and segmenting off from all the others, and it was just a range of isolated individuals. I don't think we're at the end of American greatness, or it's not like the end of the Roman Empire, but you have to think there's a danger there. 
um, that that you you lose the fundamental relationships and the fundamental loyalties, any sense of a national story. What is America for? What binds us together across difference? All that stuff is under threat right now, and that's why I think it's such an extraordinary moment. The economy is doing fine, okay, anyway, but the fundamentals of our society, the substrate, the layer down there, that's what really was not at risk in the Great Depression. They had economic hurt, but families were holding together, communities were holding together, trust was really super high, actually. And now we, we've got, in some ways, a more foundational problem. This uh, attack on truth uh, really strikes me. I've spent the bulk of my career as an attorney and a judge and, and a journalist, all, all three look for truth and have a sense that that there is some truth uh it seems really scary that our society now is is questioning whether truth even exists yeah and you get to pick your own truth i'm a journalist and i have a political affiliation i guess a philosophical affiliation anyway but if you read an article on global warming and 99% 99% of the sign disagree on one thing. You've got to think, well, they probably know a lot more than I do. <laughs> and so you've got to have some respect for that. Once you can throw out expertise and, and you know, even today we're talking on the day of the Kavanaugh hearing and on my Twitter feed, it was, it was everybody's views was entirely predictable except for maybe 2 or 3% of people on my Twitter feed. So I only listen to them. Because I know at least they're going to give me an honest view. They might be right or wrong, but it's not shaped by their whether they're red or blue. They're just uh, actually looking at reality. One of my favorite quotes is by um, John Ruskin, who was a 19th century art critic, and among other things. And he said, the older I get, the more I realize that the great capacity of a man or a woman is the ability to see something and saw what they saw and, and describe what they saw in a plain way. That a uh, hundred people can talk for one who can think but a thousand can think for one who can see. And you think seeing reality is, seems plain. You just look at it. But in politics, nobody sees reality plainly. No. They th- see it through their lens. So to have the ability to distance from your own passions and biases and at least try to see reality plainly has become an underperformed art. A, a journalistic question. Uh, we've been talking throughout our conversation about truth and trust and, and relationship building. I, in my years, I don't think I've ever seen more use of anonymous sources. Yeah. Now, I understand the, the concept and I understand the reason why whistleblowers or leakers don't want to be disclosed. But do you see a danger in that, uh, it, the, the heavy use or increasing use of anonymous sourcing? Yeah, I, I do worry that we're sacrificing our standards, in, frankly, in pursuit of page views that everybody wants the salacious story that's going to get retweeted. Uh, and therefore, you do what you have to do. Uh, and it turns newspapers boring because they're all chasing the same reader. And a lot of newspapers, they have a scoreboard, and it says which stories are the most viewed up on the scoreboard. And so when you, so when you go to work, you say, oh, I want to get to the top. And that, that encourages a sort of sensationalism. And the heart and soul of any news outlet is not what's at the top of the at the most viewed, it's the meat and potatoes providing information to people, and it may not be as sexy as some salacious thing that gets you a big, um, gets you up there. But that's what gives your paper credibility or news outlet pr- credibility. And I do worry we're we're chasing our readers basically, or chasing our listeners uh, in pursuit of approval, and that's what they call affirmation journalism. I, I think there's a danger in that. 
I know you're a thoughtful guy and, and put out a couple of columns a week, but you don't have the daily right. deadline pressure. It seems to me also that we've, in, in this modern era of 24-7 news, we don't have time to think anymore. Yeah. We, we don't process things. It's just like we're on uh, the rat on the treadmill. Yeah, I face this, even though I'm a columnist, I write twice a week, I always know if I write a mediocre column about whatever happened six hours before, I'll get a bigger response maybe than if I were to re- write a really good column about something that happened three days before. Uh, and I think in the long term, but the, the columns the readers remember, the columns I remember, are the really good columns even if they were a couple days late. And there's just a, I can tell you from my own work, there's a trade-off. It's very hard to write a thoughtful column two hours after something happened. You just got to sleep on it a couple nights, <laughs> and it's got to percolate yeah. a little bit. And you got to gather some information, <laughs> and so the speed up. And then at the end of the year, one of the things I do with my columns, I have a, something called the Sydney Awards. I take the best long form journalism uh, of the year, and I just try to celebrate it. So you, if you want to read something really long but very thoughtful and really good, try these. And I provide links. And when I read those at, every year around Christmas time, I always think. I should spend more of my life reading this stuff and less time <laughs> reading Twitter. <laughs> right. I want to bring you back to to the reason you're in town. So Weave is hosting a dinner tonight. Um, I know you've hosted these dinners all over the country. What do they normally look like? I know there are three texts that people will read from tonight and discuss yeah. that. We get community builders, and we really want to understand them, what drives them, what motivates them. And so we'll read a poem called Thread, which is about somebody who, who hangs on to a thread through life. There's a Whatever happens in their life, there's a thread that drives their life. It could be journalism. It could be caring about people. It could be hospitality. I think most of us have a thread that drives our life. And that's a poem to get them to talk to each other, really, about what is the core motive, what is my call calling in life, what gets me into this line of work. The One of the amazing things about people who build community, and I think true of a lot of people, is they're not definitely not driven by money. <laughs> They're not driven by power. They're not driven by status. Primarily, they're driven by two things. One, they just like to be in relation with other people. They liked other people. And two, they like to feel good about themselves. They like to think, well, I am making a difference to something I truly love. And so just to hear people talk about that, we're too much influenced by economics that who think we're all driven by money. I actually think relatively few people are driven by money. But just to bring that out in them. And then, so a lot of it is the personal motivation. Some people are trying to fill a hole in their soul. There's a young man in D.C. His dad was killed, had an affair, and was killed by his mistress when this kid was nine. Wow. And so he, um, he started a camp for fatherless boys. He's trying to correct the thing that happened in his own life. And I find that all over the place. And so what, what is the motivation? What is the calling? And then what's the attitude, this attitude of, as I say, radical mutuality, intimacy, creating a, a system for relationship? In Chicago, there's something called becoming a man. They take gang members on the west side. They bring them around a table. And all the young men have to check in, as they say it. They have to describe how they're doing spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, and physically. And if they're not completely vulnerable with each other, the other guys get all over with them. So there's like a system to create vulnerability and intimacy and connection and trust. And then beyond that, you have to have the good intentions. You have to have the good hearts, as these people have. We also have to have a system. You have to have an engineering technology like at AceNet here. They have a system for bringing food together, food producers together into a building so they can produce under FDA-approved conditions. So it's a good heart and an engineer's brain. (laughs) So you can build a system around that. And that's a rare combination. But the people who have it are just golden for a community. 
David, we know that uh, you've got to get on to your next stop. We don't want to make you late, but thank you so much for stopping by and talking with us. Enormous pleasure to be here. Thank you. Today, we've been talking with New York Times columnist and political commentator David Brooks about people building trust, connection, and relationships at the local grassroots level and how different this is from the politics of Washington. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Also, WOUB has launched a brand new podcast called Lifespan. On Lifespan, you'll hear stories about encounters with the healthcare system Each show contains stories bound by a common theme, a person's personal journey through a particular type of medical trauma. Subscribe to this new podcast. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or at the NPR Podcast Directory.